You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hello and welcome back to Attaboy Clarence. Sorry I've been away. I've been off trying to buy gifts for not just those I love, but also for my own home. Without success. If only there was a one-stop shop that sold all the kinds of things I like. The name Elgin American means the very finest quality designing, finish and craftsmanship. The best value. Ooh, Elgin American. Where have you been all my life? In exquisite compact, gorgeous simulated pearls. Gorgeous simulated pearls? Here, take my money. Magnificent dresser sets. Sold. Magic action lighters. Sold. Wondrous lighter cases, distinguished cigarette cases. Sold. Handsome military sets. Yes, yes, dresser sets, distinguished cigarette cases, and magic lighters are all very well, but I'm looking for something really special. Fascinating musical humidors. What was that? Fascinating musical humidors. Fascinating musical humidors? Fascinating musical humidors. We have a winner. Your favorite store has a complete assortment of the newest Elgin American styles right now. I think we can all agree right now that what everyone needs in their life is a fascinating musical humidor. For thrilling prestige gifts, always by Elgin American. I bloody will, you know. Just quickly before I start throwing movies in your face, it's my pleasure to announce that a new issue of The Dark Pages is out. This sounds like such a brilliant issue. Check this out. You have a glance at two film noirs from international territories, one from Argentina called The Naked Angel, and one from Britain called The Long Arm, which sounds very good, and I must track down a copy. Also in this issue, a look at some of film noir's greatest endings. Very interesting. Plus, listings for all noir showings on TCM, what's coming out on Blu-ray and DVD, ooh, a new edition of The Woman in the Window. And to top it all off, there's a contest in which you can win some really amazing movie books. To get your copy, go over to www.allthatnoir.com and sign up. They'll even give you a free copy so that you can try it out. Do it now. As for this neck of the woods... Maybe you have a question. Well, throw it into the question pot. Strangely, there is no next line. Well, maybe I'll read your question out on the show, or maybe not. Now, here's someone with a handbell. Yes, we're spending a spell in the dark and murky question pot, which hasn't been cleaned for a while. I do apologize. Let's see what we have here. Then first query is from Cheryl Serio. Hi, Cheryl. Cheryl writes, Hi, Adam. I'm a patron. Big fan. I found I Love You Again at my local library. What a super fun movie. Laughed so hard. So many great laughs. Taking the ice out of the bag on his head and putting it into his scotch. The pigeon coos to Myrna. I needed a big laugh and I got one. You should do a William Powell salute. How he got through Harlow's death. I'm sure there are so many tales. Anyway, big fun. Keep on doing what you do. Cheryl. 
Thank you, Cheryl. Yes, I've been holding back on doing a William Powell tribute for now, as I'm planning to do a secret history on the Thin Man, and his story is very dramatic. But you know what? I may have to do an Attaboy show containing a few of his films, because he really is one of my favourites ever. Thank you for writing, Cheryl. Hey, have a Canterbury. Canterbury. How about this one from Brent Tannehill, who says, Not a question, but a comment. Ian Boothby and David Dedrick, the podcasters who bring you Sneaky Dragon every week, have created a new limited-run podcast all about the Marx Brothers movies. It's called Full Marx, and it's available on iTunes and the other places where podcasts are found. Thank you, Brent. There seriously can never be too many classic movie podcasts in the world, so you heard it, folks. If you're a Marx fan, do run over and grab Full Marks. I'll be doing exactly that. Thank you for pointing the way, Brent. For no reason at all, have an Irish jigtaberry. Last question, then, is from Matilda. I'm assuming that's my daughter, Matilda. As it says, Dad, I'm thinking of starting a podcast. What should it be about? Well, I hope it's my daughter, Matilda, and not some love child I've never met. If so, you'll have to be Matilda 2.0. Anyway, Matilda, I think you should start a podcast about something you're really good at. So you could do one on playing the harp, which you're very good at. Or you could do one about leaving your very expensive school bag on a bus, which you're excellent at. Other areas in which you excel include leaving lights on, not eating vegetables, and losing your shoes. An expectant world awaits your choice, Matilda. As a reward for your question, please accept the latest in the Canterbury stable. There's a star waiting in the sky. He'd like to come and meet us, but he thinks he'd blow our minds. There's a star waiting in the sky. He's told us not to blow it. No New Year for you. And remember, if you have a question, go on over to www.attaboyclarence.com and scroll down the homepage until you see the question pot. Throw it in and I'll do my best to answer the blighter right here. So throw your flipping questions into the shiny question pot. You might hear your question next time. So until then, get your thinky cap on. For the question pot. Okay, that's the end. Da 
down in Trinidad. You won't believe what a lovely time I had. Was a decent bacchanal. Everybody playing cannibal. What they were saying was holly, holly, and maybe I'm both, both. Down by the seaside, a sipping sand. Even Linda Taylor and joined in the bar. Singing holly, holly, and maybe Everywhere I went, everybody there was pleasure men. Man, woman, and child, Trinidad was ready going wild. What they were seen was holiday, all night, a million. Down by the seaside, slipped in sand. Even little children joined in the bar, singing all day, all night, a million. Boat, boat. Rhythm in the air, everybody, why nobody care? They were swinging to and fro, know the music of the Calypso. What they were singing was Holly, all night, a million. Down by the seaside, slipped in the sand. Even little fear and Everybody, Holly. And that was the fabulous Sir Lancelot with Mary Anne. Excellent as ever. Well, I have a listener to thank for the first movie today, a new acquaintance with the fabulous name of Jago Irwin. Hi there, Jago. Suggested that I check out 1949's Thieves' Highway, starring Richard Conte, Lee J. Cobb and Valentina Cortese. What happened? Tell me what happened. I get a nice truckload of tomatoes, Orleanas, first of season. I live with produce dealer, Mike Figlia, in San Francisco, on consignment. I go back for money. He say he sell good for good price. Come on, we have party, he say. I buy you drinks. I go for a drink, two, three glass wine. I say, now you pay me money. Mike Figlia say, sure, I'm going to pay. Have another glass wine. Two fellows from market, they say, come on, pop. So we drinks lots of wine. I laugh, I feel good, I have a good time. I think how happy Mama gonna be when I come home, throw money like leaves all over the floor. Don't remember no more. All I know is here it hurt. It hurt. For a long time he don't believe his legs gone. He think new legs will grow. 
This is directed by Jules Dassin, who has one of those names that when you look at it, you imagine it to be French. That has to be pronounced Jules Dassin, right? Nope, it's plain old Jules Dassin, who was born in Connecticut, although he did actually work in France after the Blacklist scandal. He's probably best remembered for The Naked City and Rafifi, wonderfully talented man who made some remarkable noir screen stories. Thieves Highway is essentially about a man who buys some apples, puts them in a truck, and then sells the apples. Oh, and it's also about corruption, revenge, a prostitute, the perils of driving an unsafe truck on the roads, and plenty of deceitful behavior, but mainly apples. Golden delicious apples, to be exact. I bought this truck from your old man. I'll talk to him. I'll square everything with You'll him. You'll talk to me. Where are the keys? Look, kid, this bargain your old man sold me, I've been keeping it together with spit. The universal shot, the rear end, sounds like she's coming apart. I'd be glad to give it back to him, but I need it for one more haul, just one. If your old man's worried about his money, tell him Ed Kinney's got the first load of golden delicious apples. If you got money to buy apples, why don't you pay for the truck? I haven't got a dime, but this crop is so hot, two guys are buying me a load just to find out where it is. The hero, although I use the term loosely, is Nick Garkos, played by Richard Conte, who returns from war with pockets full of money, only to find that his father has been crippled by a villainous fruit dealer from San Francisco, Mike Figlia, played by Lee J. Cobb. And let's face it, it isn't every day that your father gets crippled by a villainous fruit dealer. Using his pockets full of money, Nick buys a truck full of apples and sets off to infiltrate Figlia's fruit empire in search of revenge. This is actually what happens. Now, why would I want to pull a trick on you? Because I'm a pushover, too, like my old man. I come down here to pick up his truck and I wind up blowing all my cash. But I want to tell you one thing. I work like a dog for that dough. Jip me and I'll cut your heart out. Thanks. I'll remember that. I'm not going to tell you any more than that, and I urge you not to find out what happens. This is definitely a film that's best enjoyed like an apple, fresh. Now, I know it may seem like kind of a hard sell from the synopsis. This is kind of a small story compared to some of the sagas you usually find in film noir, but rest assured that this is every bit as enthralling, every bit as sleazy, and every bit as suspenseful as any of the great 40s noir films. This has the honor of mainly being set during the daytime, too, which makes it feel all the more impressive as it's a very dark movie. There are several scenes that will shock you. The scene where Nick is seduced by Valentina Cortese in her squalid hotel room is pretty shocking, especially for a 40s movie, and it reveals Nick as very much an anti-hero. This is a man with a fiancé at home, and yet his hands are suddenly everywhere, and his language becomes suddenly very coarse. There are several scenes set on the road, including one with a jack and one with a hill that will make you feel very queasy indeed, and the film's climax, in which a certain character is given the hiding of his life, will make you wince with its brutality. So as far as film noirs go, Thieves Highway proves that you don't have to have a city populated by wisecracking private detectives or sardonic policemen. You can find those kinds of shadows in every corner of the city, even in a box of apples. Definitely check it out. In fact, I have a copy of Thieves Highway to give away on DVD. To find out how to win it, keep listening. Shoe fly pie, an apple pan, doubt it makes your eyes your Tommy say howdy shoot fly pie an apple pan daddy I never 
wonderful stuff. You fly pie and apple pan. Down it makes the sun come out when heavens are cloudy. You fly pie and apple pan. Down it, I never get enough of that wonderful stuff. Mama, when you bake, Mama, I don't want cake, Mama. For my sake, go to the oven and make some ever loving. She shoes fly by an apple pan. Daddy makes your eyes light up. Your Tommy say, Howdy, shoe fly by an apple pan. Daddy, I never get enough of that wonderful stuff. And that was Shoe Fly Pie and Apple Pan Dowdy by Dinah Shaw. Lovely. Actually, I have to say, shoe flies becoming something of a repeated phrase in this house at present. It's very, very hot. And so the windows are always open and the flies keep buzzing their way in. So I've got fly papers all over the shop. I always think it's rather tragic when there's one fly on the paper and all the other flies are sort of circling around it, wondering why Terry the fly isn't moving. I wonder if Terry the fly tries to make the best of it. Might even try to talk his friend into landing on the paper just to keep him company. I wonder if they're annoyed when they take him up on it. I'm very upset with you, Terry. My feet are stuck on this thing now, and I don't think I can get off it. You've ruined my shoes, you have, Terry. I've only had these shoes for two weeks, and now they're ruined. You might have a lot of money to spend on shoes, Terry, but I haven't. My bloody hands are stuck too. It's not funny, Terry. I'm supposed to be at work in 20 minutes. How am I supposed to get to work now I'm stuck on this paper? You know money's a bit tight for me at the moment, Terry. And what about my library books? They're due back tomorrow. I'm going to get a fine now and it's your doing. I hope you're happy with yourself, Terry. <laughs> yes, well, anyway, let's skip on over to the second film of today's show. The marketing blurb says that this is a horror film. The marketing blurb is wrong. I mean, it's definitely horrible, but not particularly scary. This is The Crime of Dr. Crespi from 1935, starring Eric von Stroheim and Dwight Fry in a rare heroic role. Good afternoon, sir. 
I'd like to talk to you about the patient in room 310. Yes? He passed away. That's too bad. I thought he'd pull through. Will you make out the certificate? What time? I think 3.45. You think? Dr. Thomas, please. Let's understand each other once and for all. I don't pay you to think. I pay you to know. I wish to be more thorough. This isn't anything to think about. A person is dead or he's not. If he's dead, he died at a definite time. And that time is important. Yes, sir. I'll fill in 345 as you suggest, but in the future I must insist on the exact record. This is actually very loosely based on Edgar Allan Poe's The Premature Burial, although no one actually gets buried at any point. I know what you're thinking too, did he say Crespi or Crispy? It's called The Crime of Dr. Crespi, but it sounds like The Crime of Dr. Crispy. Everyone in the film pronounces it Crispy, which does make the premise of the film a lot less terrifying. A doctor should never be crispy, I think. Dr. Crispy sounds like the mascot for a breakfast cereal. Anyway, as far as the story goes, we're at a hospital and we're following the deeds of Dr. Andre Crespi, who's in love with Mrs. Ross, even though she jilted him years ago and married his rival, Dr. Ross. When Dr. Ross has a car accident, Dr. Crespi is the only man who can save him. But instead of saving him, Dr. Crespi does something very evil. He injects Dr. Ross with a newfangled drug that induces a state of apparent death. This is so that Dr. Ross will be alive when they perform an autopsy on him. Ouch. I understand how he turned you away from me after I've treated him like one with a brother. I understand how he made love to you right under my eyes. I mean, as evil plans go, that's pretty much up there. Imagine being sound asleep and then waking up to realize that you're being slowly taken apart by doctors with scalpels. Shut Bad, Dr. Crispy. So the premise is fine. That's literally all that's fine. For a start, Eric von Stroheim doesn't really get up from his desk for the whole film. He just sits there being evil in his little white coat, which makes him look more like a butler than a doctor. It's odd, really, given that he's best known for his crazy demands and excesses. I mean, this is the man who was effectively banned from directing movies in Hollywood because of his excesses. This is the man who wanted to release a 10-hour motion picture. He once built a replica of Monte Carlo within Universal Studios because he wanted absolute authenticity. In fact, he was so dead set on authenticity that he paid a vast sum of money to install in all the houses on the movie set a completely functioning doorbell system. For a silent film. So to see him sat here mumbling from behind a desk is a little disappointing. Also, this is one of the cheapest looking films I've ever seen. You will love the elevator. It's pretty much just a wardrobe with a sliding door that doesn't even slide very well. And the dialogue, though. Oh, please, Andre. Try to understand. You're the only one who can save him. Why can't you forgive and forget? <laughs> forgive, forget, understand. I do understand. Perhaps too well. 
And seriously, the costumes are so bad. You think of doctors as men in white coats. Here, they're all dressed in little white jackets. There's a scene where a lot of doctors are operating in the same room. And it looks like a load of convicts working in a kitchen. I think, though, my favorite part is where Dr. Crispy has a moment of conscience, though. He sat at his desk, as per usual in this film. He loves his desk, does Dr. Crispy. And his internal monologue, which is a woman's voice, very progressive Dr. Crispy, asks him all sorts of challenging questions while he taps his pen on a notepad. Why can't you forget and forgive? Forget and forgive. Forget. Forgive. That is right, folks. Welcome to your new EDM summer earworm anthem. Forget. Forget. Forgive. Forgive. Why can't you forget and forgive? Why can't you forget and forgive? Forget. Forgive. Why can't you forget and forgive? Why can't you forget and forgive? Why can't you forget and forgive? That's literally the best thing about the film, the fact that I got to dance around my kitchen for 10 minutes. So the crime of Dr. Crespi is pretty bad. I mean, very bad, really. It's embarrassing. So in that regard, it's less premature burial and more premature ejaculation. Last film of today is an absolute corker. I was at the BBC a little while ago, news to follow soon on why that was, but as I was being shown around by ace producer Mr. Dominic DeLaghi, he happened to mention a movie that stopped me dead in my tracks. 1934's Death at Broadcasting House. Who wouldn't want to see that film? And so... Thanks to Dominic, I now have a copy of the film that I immediately racked up and watched, and oh my holy mother, what a treat it was too. Can we have that last sentence again, Mr. Parsons? Do remember you're being strangled. You're not apologizing for revoking at cards. I was afraid of overdoing the scream. You certainly didn't do that. It sounded like gargling. Now then, once more, and do let yourself go. Come out of the shadows. You! Uh, let me go! I swear I'm innocent. You're, you're strangling me. Parsons, that's worse. Has no producer ever tried to strangle you? Sorry, Mr. Caird. I suppose I just don't come over well on the microphone. Oh, rubbish. Hold on, I'll come down and show you. So obviously we're at Broadcasting House, the home of the BBC, where a radio thriller entitled Murder Immaculate is being staged. This is the national programme. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight we present you a broadcast of a radio play entitled Murder Immaculate. The cast is as follows. The husband is played by Leopold Dryden, the wife by Joan Dryden, the guests by Walter Fotheringay and Emilia Dunn, and the wife's lover by Percy Rhodes. The victim, the man who is murdered, is played by Sidney Parsons, and the incidental music is by the Gershom Parkington Quintet. 
but the play's murder victim, played by shabby actor and part-time blackmailer Sidney Parsons, is murdered for real during the performance. It's up to Detective Inspector Gregory, played by Ian Hunter, to solve the crime. Meanwhile, life at the BBC must go on. You can't go in there. There's a play being broadcast. I'm looking for variety. That's eight floors down. Yes, but I've just come eight floors up. Then it'll be 16 floors from where you started. Uh. I am a huge fan of the Arsenal Stadium mystery, as you know. I have to say this kind of reminded me of it a bit. There isn't as much sly humour, but the mystery and the characters are all pretty wonderful. The mystery in particular is very well paced and plotted. I seem to have a little difficulty with talky murder mysteries from this period, largely I think because they tend to consist of groups of men moving from room to room and discussing clues in the same tone of voice. I sometimes get lost. That didn't happen here. I was pretty gripped and definitely got all the clues, so it was very enjoyable in that regard. And let's just talk about how British this film is. It is more British than a pregnant teenager with a sunburn holding a cup of tea and apologising for bumping into someone's arm. But one can't let an alibi slip through one's fingers. No. Especially, especially when she happens to be a nice little bit of alibi. I mean, I, I, I know for a fact that at the very time I say, oh boy, is that necessary? No, I don't know a thing about it. It was written by Val Gielgud, who also takes a supporting role in the film. He is crazy looking. I'll tell you what he looks like. Imagine if John Gielgud was in Star Trek. Then imagine he's in an episode where he gets split in two by a mysterious space ray. And one of him is good and one of him is evil. And you can only tell who's who because the evil one has a goatee. Well, Val Gielgud is the evil one. You also get a very early performance from the great Jack Hawkins in this, as well as guest appearances from some of the biggest stars of British radio during the 30s. You ready? You get Hannon Swaffer, Gilly Potter, Percival Mackey, me neither. Interestingly, there's a scene which shows the murder being reported on a newspaper's front page which proudly proclaims that the killing was heard by 25 million people as the play was broadcast. Okay, so the population of Britain during 1934 was actually 37 million. Now, I'm not saying that this film is a documentary or anything, but it does give you some idea about how popular radio was during this period. In fact, that's half the charm of this movie. Very much like the Abbott and Costello film I told you about in the latest bonus episode, the real joy of watching this is you see how radio shows were made. You see the grand art deco sets with all the actors in bow ties and all the orchestra in tails, even though their audiences couldn't see them, so there was no point dressing up. Radio studios really were a very refined place. You had to dress for the occasion, and I love that. As for the film, there are a few minuses. There's some horrible editing. Literally, there was no continuity person on this film. Cigarettes fly from hand to hand. Hats appear and disappear. But they are quite minor faults. The mystery is great. The pacing is great. I love that when the murderer is finally revealed, everyone chases the person through the building. And I mean everyone. All the supporting players, they all run in a big gang up the stairs in pursuit, even though they're being fired at with a pistol. Come on, everyone. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Look out. Come on, after him. You want to know my absolute favourite thing about this film, though? The names. Okay, so this has the best character names in it. Such British names. You have Leopold Dryden, the thespian. You have the playwright, Rodney Fleming. You have the producer, Julian Caird. 
The murder victim, shabby little man, is called Sidney Parsons. My favourite name of all, though, is the boss of Broadcasting House. Are you ready for this? His name is Sir Herbert Farquharson. I mean, come on, there are some legit brilliant names in this film. Shame about the ending, though. They find out who the murderer is, and then it literally just stops. And I've never meant that more about a film. It just stops. The whole film just stops happening. It's so weird. But you have to see it. Who wouldn't want to see a murder mystery set inside the BBC radio studios? No one. Check out Death at Broadcasting House. Definitely. Well, in keeping with this show's title, let's take a trip on over to the greatest proponent of murder on the airwaves, Suspense. Perhaps the greatest old-time radio collection of murder mysteries ever assembled. One of my favourite little cases came very early in Suspense's run. A diabolical little mystery called The Bride Vanishes by one of my favourite writers, John Dixon Carr. So for all you sleuths out there, prick up your ears and listen out for the clues. See if you can figure out the mystery as we join the peerless suspense for a very devious mystery. See you afterwards. Suspense is compounded of mystery and intrigue and dangerous adventure. Stories calculated to intrigue you, to stir your nerves. Tonight, for instance, as we begin, you may want to ask yourself, how could a young lady, a bride, walk out on a balcony alone and vanish? completely vanish. We trust that while you are wondering how and why it was done, we shall keep you in suspense. For suspense, tonight CBS presents The Bride Vanishes by John Dixon Carr. Italy in springtime. Italy as we used to know it before the jackal struck. And the island of Capri, 20 miles out across the Bay of Naples. Blue water a dazzle under the sun. Behind you the bone-white beaches and Vesuvius dull purple in a heat haze. Ahead, as the little steamer from Naples chugs out across the bay, rises Capri. Olive trees and white roads and vineyards above the cliffs. Could young Americans find a better place to spend their honeymoon? While the guitars sing and the warm winds blow and the little steamer carries them. Well, Mrs. Courtney. Well, Mr. Courtney. (laughs) I can't keep it up, Lucy. I'm going to break down and ask if you're happy. Oh, I'll break down, too. I want to walk up to everybody I meet and say, we, just like that. What I want to do is turn somersaults myself all along this deck here. I want to say, I've been married to Tom Courtney for practically two weeks. And now we're going to have a villa at Capri for a month. Oh, Tom, I ought to be the happiest woman in the world. Only... You shivered. What's wrong? Well, ever since we got aboard this ship, people have been staring at me. I can't blame him for that, dear. No, no, I I mean in in a funny way and and muttering. Even your American friend, uh, what's his name? 
Uh, Granger? Mr. Granger, when you introduced him to me at Naples, I thought his eyes were going to pop out. Be careful. He's standing over by the rail now. Oh. He lives at Capri. <laughs> I like to see him wearing that white ten-gallon hat in Italy. <laughs> <laughs> Before Granger made money in oil wells, he was a real old-fashioned cow puncher. And he's proud of it. Good fellow, too. He's too polite to say anything, but he keeps looking around at me, just the same as the rest of them do. Well? Well, Tom, they... they look scared. You know, Lucy, this isn't the time to start imagining things. I know. Well, maybe I'm just so happy I'm afraid it can't last. Oh, don't say that. But wouldn't it be pretty awful if something did happen and we weren't together any longer? Wait a minute. Hasn't this ship stopped? Yes. Well, it is Capri ahead of us, isn't it? It can't be anything else. Well, it seems a funny place to stop. No sign of a harbor. Only rocks and little gray cliffs. Oh, Mr. Granger. Uh, Mr. Granger. Yes, young fella. Do you happen to know why we're stopping here? Yes, that's an easy one, son. We're stopping so that uh, you and your good lady and anybody else who's curious can get a look at the Blue Grotto. The Blue (laughs) Grotto, of course. Now, just shave your eyes with your hand, ma'am. You see that, that tiny little arch under the cliff? Yes. And all the little white rowboats are coming out towards us? Yes. Now, when the first boat comes alongside, you climb down that iron ladder and get in. The boatman will row you out and through the arch into the grotto. It's a great big dark cavern. The water in there looks as though it's lit up underneath with blue fire. Mm. Like to go out and see it, Lucy? Oh, I'd love to. But let me give you a little tip, though. The current's pretty fast out there. You'll go shooting under that arch like 60. Are we likely to upset? Oh, no, no, but the arch isn't as high as your head. When you see it coming, lie back flat in the boat. That is, unless you want your block now, sure. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, Mr. Granger. We'll remember. Come along, Lucy. Easy on the ladder, Lucy. Don't look round yet. Oh, I'm all right, darling. And just as good a swimmer as you are. I'm in the boat now. Take one more step. Steady. Yeah. Hey, now turn around facing the boatman and sit down here oh, beside him. What's the matter with the boatman? Easy, man. Do you want to upset us? Sit down. You come back, yes? Come back? Well, I've never been here before in my life. Push off, man. Start rowing. The other boats are piling up behind you. You come back. Start rowing, can't you? And Ali Subito, basta! Tom, he can't take his eyes off us. I wish he'd watch out where he's rowing. You come to live at the Villa Borghese, yes? Tom, how does he know that? He's the lady. She is not dead. Dead? Of course she's not dead. What are you talking about? She never come to Capri before? Never. Then I tell you, she will disappear just like the other one. Disappear? I rest my orders, and I tell you. Tom, aren't we moving rather fast? Yes, that's the entrance to the grotto ahead. Oh. I tell you, there was a lady so much like your own, coveting back. Oh, it scared me. Now, look, old man, I don't want to teach you your business, but you've got your back to that grotto. Uh, take this lady back where she come from. Do not take her to the Villa Borghese. Down, Lucy, flat on your back, Down! Oh. 
you. Signore, signore, I am sorry. I almost make you get hurt. You know you nearly got your own head knocked off. Uh, excuse me, Nor. I am used to it. Now, I will roll you round the blue grotto. I think I like it much, Tom. Neither do I. Dark. Except for that blue light under the water. It's transparent. You can see the fishes swimming. Uh, just a minute, Boatman. This lady who disappeared from the Villa Borghese. Two, three years ago, she disappeared. You say she looked exactly like my wife? See, si, Signore. She was uh, going to be married. She was trying on a, what do you call, her wedding dress. Her mother and sisters, they were in the room with her. She walked out on a balcony over the sea. You know what I mean, on a balcony over the sea? And nobody ever hear of her again. You mean she jumped over into the sea? Or a young girl going to be married. Kill herself. No, 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 no. And what did happen? Over the her, I do not know. But sometimes they say you can meet her ghost in the here. She floats just under the water where you can see her and turn over and over. And the wedding veil is still round her face. Tom, let's get out of here. You want to go, yes? Lucy, if this fellow's stringing us along... He's not stringing us along. Then somebody ought to know what this means. If we've inherited a haunted balcony where people disappear like soap bubbles, I say it's too much. Let's get back to our ship and talk to Granger. Yes, Boatman, take us back. You too, young woman. This ship will start to help us like here. Give me a hand, Lucy. Thanks, dear. Oh, did, didn't anybody else go to the Blue Grotto? Well, ma'am, no. Not after they saw you go. It's all right. We've just heard the story, Mr. Granger. Oh, I ought to have told you about it myself. All the way out here, I've been cussing myself and thinking what a nornery old badger I am for not telling you when I first met you in Naples. The girl did vanish then. By a first-rate miracle, yes. In broad daylight and within 20 feet of her mother and sisters. You don't look like a man who'd believe in miracles, Mr. Granger. Oh, I'm not, son. I'm just telling you what happened. But why is everybody so excited? Somebody must have thrown her off the balcony. Josephine Adams was all alone on a balcony 40 feet up a cliff, smooth as glass. She didn't fall. She wasn't thrown because there was no sound of a splash. And she didn't come back from the balcony because her mother and sisters were in front of the only door. Yet, within 15 seconds, 15 seconds, mind you, she just vanished. You believe that? Sure, I believe it, son. Why, it's a fact. Did you know the girl's family? Oh, very well. We've got a real English-speaking colony here. Oh, by the way, in about a half a minute now, I'm going to show you your new home. Oh, can we see it here on the ship? Oh, sure you can, ma'am. It's on the edge of the cliff. Dr. Davis's house is on one side of it, and my shack's on the other. Uh... That's why I want to ask you a question. Of course. Ask anything you like. Well, I'm an old stager, ma'am, and not exactly up to the high-toned society around here, but do you... do you trust me? Yes, I think so. Well, then promise me something. Unless you're with somebody you do trust, keep away from that balcony. Do you honestly think there's danger or... I don't know, son. If I did, I wouldn't have to talk this way. Sounds like a dog barking. I thought I heard it before. What is? A big police dog. 
And led by a very handsome woman, if you ask me. Oh, Lord, here she is again. Who? The Countess. She lives in our colony. She looks like an American. You take your eyes off her, Tom Courtney. <laughs> she is an American. Married a Count Parcheesi or something like that. <laughs> Just call her Nellie. My dear Mr. Granger. Hello, Nellie. It's true. Everybody told me so, but I couldn't believe it until I saw her. She does look exactly like poor Josephine Adams. Just as small, just as dainty. <laughs> Please, is, is everybody trying to give me the jitters? Nellie, I, I want you to meet some friends of mine. Oh, you don't need to introduce me. I know who they are. You're the nice young couple who've taken that villa. I'm Nellie Lacase. Oh, oh, yes. This is my dog, Tiberius, named after the wicked Roman emperor. You know who used to live at Capri? I must confess I'm terribly fascinated by wicked things. <laughs> Aren't you, Mr. Courtney? Lucy, stop digging me in the ribs. I haven't done anything. No, and you're not going to. Tiberius seems to have taken quite a fancy to you, Mrs. Courtney. Oh. I've never known him to go to a stranger before. Well, I only wish I could borrow him. He might be a charm against... Oh, no, I don't know. We'll be at the harbor in a few minutes. Then you must let me drive you up to the villa. You won't be able to get any servants, I'm afraid, because they won't stay there. But you can camp out. Look. There's the villa. We're passing it now. Where? On the cliff. Where I'm pointing. Wait a minute. Well, there must be some mistake. That's not the Villa Borghese. It sure is, son. That's a palace like all the other houses there. And I rented it furnished for about $25 a month. Can't you guess why you got it so cheap, son? You take my advice, you'll turn around and go back to Naples by the next steamer. Harry Granger, don't be an idiot. Let's have some excitement. Let's have some excitement. Tom is beautiful. Too infernally beautiful, if you ask me. There, there's the balcony. It's all right by daylight, son. Marble and tapestries and whatnot. But at night, when you gotta put out the lights, you start thinking what happened there. Capri makes a deathly daylight. You could see to read on that balcony if anyone went out there. Frosted glass doors open out on it from a big room on the ground floor. Two determinedly calm persons and a dog sit looking at each other. Lucy, stop it. Stop what? Stop looking over at that balcony. I'm sorry, darling. Why are we sitting here, anyway? There's an outer room that's much more comfortable. It's like having a toothache. A very little toothache. I may be dense, Angel, but I don't follow you. You put your tongue against the tooth to see if it'll hurt. You know it will hurt, but you go on doing it just the same. That's us. <sighs> Maybe you're right. <laughs> oh, Tom, did you ever think we'd have a lovely house like this? Yeah, the house is all right, yes. Then they have to go and spoil everything. Our honeymoon... With this blasted Tommy rod Why, about... Tom, you're as jittery now as I was this afternoon. Oh, even Tiberius is jittery. Yes, I guess I am. Easy, boy. Easy, easy. Well, there's whiskey on the table. <laughs> they call it Vicky here. Make yourself a drink. Hmm? Oh, in a minute. Not just now. Lucy, there's nothing wrong with that balcony. 
Suppose you walked out there this minute. I've had a horrible longing to try it. Just because I know I shouldn't. But nothing could attack you. All you'd have to do would be to yell. That'd bring Mr. Granger out on his balcony like a shot. And the neighbor on the other side of us would... Well, who is on the other side, by the way? A loony doctor. A what? A specialist in brain diseases. Dr. Davis. He's English. Listen. It's somebody in the other room. Easy, Tiberius. Easy. Tom, I'm afraid. It's all right, darling. You hold Tiberius's collar while I open the door. We don't want him to fly at anybody. We're going into the other room and stay there. Ready? Yes. Good evening, Mr. Courtney. Uh, good evening, Mrs. Courtney. I, I'm no ghost, though you appear to regard me as one. I'm merely your neighbor, Dr. Rutherford Davis. Oh, oh y- yes, of, of course. Mr. Granger mentioned you. I, uh, I, I trust you will pardon this intrusion. Uh, no one answered my knock, so I, I ventured to come in. <laughs> it's no intrusion, Dr. Davis. We're a little... Uh... <laughs> Disorganized here, that's all. Uh, naturally. Mr. Courtney, I... I wish I could say welcome to Capri, but I have a very different message. Well? If you value Mrs. Courtney's life, you'll go back to Naples immediately, sir. Not you, too. I do not say that as a ghost hunter, sir. I say it as a medical man. Um, may I sit down? Oh, of course. Please do. Oh, thank you. We seem to be forgetting our manners. Uh, Dr. Davis, will you, um, will you have a drink? Oh, uh, thank you. Perhaps a small whiskey? Uh, I'll get it, darling. You sit down and talk to Dr. Davis. You're not going back into that room alone. Oh, I'm only going to get the drinks, Tom. I promise to be good. And Tiberius can come with me. Can't you, Tiberius? Oh, I see you've borrowed Tiberius from the Countess Lucchese. <laughs> yes, she was kind enough to offer him. Excuse me, I'll be back in a minute. Come on, Tiberius. This is all right, Doctor. No, sir. It is not all right. Your wife is in very great danger. But why? Because of that balcony? Uh, No. Because she looks exactly like the late Josephine Adams. I don't get it. Uh, Mr. Courtney, did you ever hear of paranoia? It's some kind of mental disease, isn't it? The paranoic begins by imagining that he or she is being persecuted by someone. First, he hears things. A voice in his brain whispers, you'll be killed, you'll be killed, you'll be killed. He hears it in the tick of a clock, in the rattle of a train, in the footsteps on the street. There are holes in the walls through which his enemy is always watching. Invisible speaking tubes bring him messages. There are pains in his joints and nightmares of attempts to poison him. His brain bursts and he kills, he kills, he kills. Excuse me for speaking so strongly, but how does this affect us? Uh, Mr. Courtney, will you, uh, uh, will you examine this sheet of paper? What is it? The fragment of a typewritten diary. I found it on the cliffs months ago. Don't ask me who wrote it. But I know there's a criminal lunatic on this island. He imagined that poor, inoffensive Josephine Adams was his enemy. So he killed her. Killed her? Oh, I don't know. 
And what happened to the girl's body? <laughs> I'm not a detective, sir. The body was carried out to sea, perhaps, or washed along the cliffs and into the blue grotto to be lost. But don't you understand the danger to your wife? You're not suggesting that with somebody's cracked brain, your wife is Josephine Adams, created all over again. Kill Lucy? It couldn't be done. It was done, my friend. Listen. That sounded like a dog howling. Mrs. Courtney is rather a long time in getting that whiskey. She wouldn't go near the balcony. She promised not to go out on the balcony. People do very perverse things, my friend, when they know they shouldn't. Lucy! Lucy! That seems to be Tiberius out on the balcony. I, uh, I, I, I can't see anything else from here. She's gone. She's gone. She's gone. <laughs> balcony, a howling dog, and a sea turned clear silver under the moon. Then, after the tumult and the shouting, there are other pictures. Don't you hear the noise of that motor launch with a half-demented young man at the wheel? Three other familiar figures are gathered around it. Don't you recognize the brunette prettiness of Nellie Lucasa? the white ten-gallon hat of Harry Granger, and the neat, pointed beard of Dr. Davis. But what on earth is he going to do out here in this motorboat? I'd like to know Edwin myself. Listen, please. All of you. Now, take it easy, son. We're with you. What time is it? Time? Yes. What time is it? It's half past two in the morning, going on for three. Twelve hours. And the tide ought to be just where it was this afternoon. What's the tide got to do with it? A whole lot. Somebody set a trap and made Lucy fall off that balcony. I know it. Oh, that's absurd. If Lucy's been carried out to sea, there's nothing we can do about it. But if she's been carried along with the current and into the blue grotto... Blue grotto? Uh, one moment, sir. You're not proposing to run this big launch under that arch after dark? Yes, Doctor. That's just exactly it. Go on. Do it. I'll back you up. Let's have some excitement. It'll be exciting enough, I assure you. Mr. Courtney, have you got some wild hope of recovering your wife's body? I've even got a wild hope she may be alive. Lucy's a very strong swimmer. You're acting like a nut, son. Get set, everybody. I'm going to swing around. We're in the current now. Better hold tight. I've got to duck my own head when we go through. Everybody else, squat down. I still protest against this. Don't you understand, Mr. Cotton? Get ready. Here we go. What on earth is wrong? There's no blue grotto. It's as black as pitch. My dear Nelly, I kept trying to tell all of you. The blue grotto effect is caused by the sun's rays. There never is one except when the sun is out. Uh, 
Just how does our friend propose to find anything in here? Listen. Something got hold of the side of the boat. I, I felt it move. Not the date girl, I trust. There's a hand here. A wet hand. Lucy. She's not alive. Mr. Granger, help me lift her up over the side. Easy, easy now. Don't tip the boat. Oh, Lucy. Lucy, are you all right? Are you all right, Lucy? Can you hear me? All right. I'm just exhausted. I got in here. Couldn't swim out against the current. Now, don't try to talk. I've got to talk. I'm going to faint. Tom, who's with you? Only our friends. Who's with you? Is the murderer with you? I was just wondering the same thing. To be shut up in the dark at three o'clock in the morning with a criminal lunatic. Who spoke then? Now, Lucy, don't hold me so tight. Let go, dear. I'll get the boat started and have you out of here in a second. Who spoke then? Only Dr. Davis. Tom, I've got to tell you. I know how that, that girl, Josephine Adams, died. Almost killed me. Has anybody here got some brandy? Or a flashlight? I have a flashlight, my friend. Will you allow me, as a medical man, to examine Mrs. Courtney? You better keep back for just a second, Doctor. She's hysterical. Give me the flashlight, please. I walked into the other room. Nobody with me. All alone except Tiberius. Yes, Lucy. Somebody called my name. From the balcony, I thought. Very softly. Mrs. Courtney said. Mrs. Courtney. Did you recognize the voice? Yes. That's why I went. Oh, hadn't you better start up this boat and get out of here? Don't pay any attention to them, Lucy. Nobody can hurt you now. I went out in the balcony. The bright moonlight. Brightest day. But there was nobody there. Nobody on the balcony? No. I looked out over the sea. And then something came at me. Something flew out of the air and came at well, me. Just one moment before Mrs. Courtney goes on. Is anybody in this boat carrying a revolver? Not that I know of. Excuse my mentioning it, but I felt something. Metal, like a revolver, uh, brush past my hand. Oh, it was only the flashlight. Excuse Probably. me, it was not a flashlight. Mr. Courtney's got the flashlight. Would you please let Lucy go on and finish? Lucy, you were on the balcony and something came at you. Yes. Like a snake, sideways, out of the air. It went over my head, fastened around my neck. It was a rope with a running noose in it. A rope? That's it, a rope. It was thrown from another balcony. I'm small and light, like Josephine Adams. But it pulled me sideways and over the rail. I fell. I think I begin to understand what... I couldn't see what happened to Josephine Adams. Frosted glass doors to the balcony, so they couldn't see. Now take it easy now. You're perfectly safe. But is she perfectly safe? The murderer let her fall on the rope. But the rope was jerked tight long before she struck the water. That broke her neck. Then the murderer lowered her softly. So there wasn't any splash. And the current took her away, rope and all. That's it. It would have happened to me. Only the rope must have slipped through the murderer's fingers. Through whose fingers? What did I tell you? Somebody in this boat has got a revolver. 
Who's overboard? Somebody went. A switch on that light, my friend, and shine it on the water. All right, Doctor. There's your light. Look at it. Turning over and over. The water in the blue grotto is red now. Tom, stay close to me. Oh, it's all right, Lucy. I swear you're safe enough now. Did he shoot himself? Yes. Did who shoot himself? Who had a balcony exactly like ours on the house next door? Who began life as a cowpuncher and would have known how to use a lasso? Yes, and knew Josephine Adams well. And got it into his maniac's head that Mrs. Courtney was Josephine Adams all over again. Harry Granger. Look. There's his ten-gallon hat floating away. And so ends The Bride Vanishes, a story of mysterious doings in the Isle of Capri, and tonight's story of Suspense. And that was The Bride Vanishes from Suspense Glorious. Okay, so if you'd like to win a DVD copy of Thieves Highway, all you have to do is head on over to the Facebook page at facebook.com slash attaboyclarence and like the competition post you'll find there. It's very simple. I'll draw a winner in two weeks and notify you all via Facebook. For all you patrons, the bonus shows will be coming to you every fortnight. The next bonus show will contain the name of the winner of the Abbott and Costello competition. One of you lucky souls has won a huge box set of all their films. So listen to that to find out who's won. I just want to say quickly that this will be the last Attaboy show for a little while as I'm off to do the hard work on the new Secret History of Hollywood episode. So don't go thinking I've died. I'm fine. I'm just on a slight break. As I've told you before, though, if you want to keep receiving Attaboy shows while I'm away, then it's very easy to do so. Simply become a patron of the show. You get bonus Attaboy shows, you get film club invites, you get ebooks, you get previews, you get commentaries, all kinds of stuff. It's so easy to sign up. Just listen on to the end of this show to find out how. I will see you in a little while then. Lots more movies to tell you about. Lots more radio to play for you. Just keep it here and I'll be back as soon as I can. Until then, though, take very, very good care of yourselves. And bye for now. You'll be hearing from my solicitor about this, Terry. How am I supposed to keep my doctor's appointment when I'm stuck to a piece of paper like this? Both my hands and both my feet are stuck now. Look at me. I look like a bloody table. If you'd like to support this show, you can do so by going to www.attaboyclarence.com and clicking on the Patreon banner. Pledges start from as little as $1 a month. And in return, you'll receive exclusive emails, bonus episodes, previews, and ebooks. And every dollar pledged goes towards making these shows better and more frequent. Go to www.attaboyclarence.com or click the link in the show notes now to become a patron. Thank you. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. vs. China. 
where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.